Welcome to Because the Beatles, a podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos, videos, and more from this episode and beyond. Also, always feel free to shoot us an email at bcthebeatles at gmail.com with your Beatles-related thoughts, comments, questions, really anything. We never get tired of talking about the Beatles. We sure talked about the Beatles a lot this weekend. We did, and it was fun because we got to be in the same place at the same time for the first time since we started this podcast, which is crazy. It was so much fun, and we got to do the podcast together, which was super fun, too. So for those of you who may have missed our last episode or two, we went to the International White Album Symposium at Monmouth University in New Jersey. It was amazing. I can't stop thinking about how good it was. It far surpassed like any of my own personal expectations. It was so good. It was so amazing. There were so many academics there presented papers on all kinds of things from the White Album. Like I had no idea how vast the range of subjects was going to be. Yeah. And it was so cool to get to meet so many people like we met people from, of course, from England, from Ireland. There was somebody there from like Denmark and just all around like it was so neat. We had, I think, 75 sessions around that number. Jude Kessler was there, who was on a few episodes ago talking about John Lennon. She's the John Lennon expert, really. Ken Womack, who was the director of the event, who was on, I think, two episodes ago, now talking about George Martin. He's a George Martin biographer. And of course, I mean, you know, the creme de la creme, the king of our hearts, Mr. Mark Lewison was there. Hashtag Lewison is God, who was just, I mean, sublime. In a word, exquisite. And he's so genuine and earnest about the way he likes to talk about the Beatles. And it is such a pleasure to hear him speak. This is definitely not a case of, you know, never meet your idols. He's amazing. For real. And he had a great line. I wish I could remember it. It was, he was the mystery guest, quote unquote, mystery guest on Sunday when there was an event where people could bring an artifact or something. And he would talk for five minutes on the artifact. And he had a great line. It was something like a lot of Beatles experts have a lot of ego, but that kind of ruins it when that gets involved because he's only interested in the truth. And it was so on point. Yeah. I know for us and for a lot of other people, that's kind of frustrating when, you know, Beatles history turns into like a dick measuring contest. Like nobody wants that. But Mark Lewison is always just after what's the truth, what's accurate. And it's so refreshing. And he's so amazing. (laughs) And he also, he's funny. He's hilarious. His last keynote was hilarious. He put together this incredible slideshow, basically going day to day through the, I think, three or four months around the time of the White Album being released and recorded. We should post some pictures of those slides that we took. Oh, yes. There were a few really We took some really, (laughs) yeah, some really (laughs) interesting photos uh, from that. Some really good jokes. Yes. Mark Lewis had made uh, a dick joke or two. Sure did. And that was amazing. That was great. It was a joy and a privilege to be around him over the weekend. Um, we, you know, hate to brag, but I think we should we should mention the highlight of our lives, though, of the weekend. We'll talk about it at the end a little bit more. Okay, well, we'll make you wait then. All right. <laughs> we did have a pretty amazing thing happened to us. We are obsessed with it. And so we're going to wait till the end to talk about it. But yeah, it's good. Yeah. So you should probably just, uh, yeah, keep listening, keep listening. But of course we did record our podcast and we don't think we mentioned that yet. 
because <laughs> it was just sort of like one of the cool things that happened. Yeah, we got up early on Saturday morning, recorded uh, with a group of really fun, cool Beatles fans. If yeah. any of you are listening, thanks for coming. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to meet you guys. And yeah, lots of good discussion around our topic, which we're going to just play you guys the live recording here in a little bit. But it was cool to be in the room recording with people actually responding to you right then. Yeah, the engagement and the discussion was so much fun. They were so engaged and the questions that they asked, just they weren't on our list for the most part. So we really just got to dive deep into other topics. It was great. The first thing we went to the whole time was the Minute Listening Party when the night the album came out, the reissue came out. For a lot of people there, that was the first time hearing a lot of the remixes in person. And also they had it set up in a 5.1 surround sound, which there's a lot of talk about that over the weekend. And it's not all hype because that was astounding. Oh my God, the things that they did to make this work, you got to sit in the middle of a room and listen to it like this at least once. It was so cool. People talk about Dear Prudence. And I know you really liked that, Erica, mm -hmm. the, the mix on that. I love Goodnight with the harmonies, one of the outtakes that's on the bonus discs. It really brought the White Album to life, which was such a great way to kick off the weekend, where we all we do is talk about the White Album for like four days. For sure. And speaking of kicking off the weekend, what I didn't know when I got there was oh, that- Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Erica almost cried. <laughs> I almost, I, yeah, I almost passed out. Monmouth University is home to Wilson Hall, which was built by Woodrow Wilson and later on became the setting for Daddy Warbucks House in the 1982 movie Annie with Aileen Quinn, which is my favorite movie of all time that I probably watched 600 times when I was little. So being in Daddy Warbucks House was ridiculous. And Ken Womack, if you're out there, thank you for letting me know that the first night because it made that whole weekend just ridiculous. so good so fun ken can literally testify that erica almost cried because he was there and saw it but i took a picture of erica in the annie bathtub the tub where she washes sandy during <laughs> i think i'm gonna like it here we'll maybe post that because it's so cute and fun it was fun the whole thing was fun the organ that she plays was there so anyway side note it was awesome if you're in the neighborhood go see annie's house it's so good Anyway, Too Long Didn't Read, the White Album Symposium was amazing. It was so, so great. It was really refreshing and cool to hear perspectives on this album that we're, you know, obviously so familiar with. But I know I definitely came away with more of an appreciation for it around the recording of it, around like what was going on in the studio and their lives and all of that, like a deeper understanding than I ever thought was possible, really. Yeah, and we got to hear not only from academics, which was very cool, some papers on intertextuality and the White Album lyrics and subjects like that, which you don't always hear. We also got to hear from some new people in the Beatles community that we hadn't necessarily heard from before. So one of them was Chris Thomas, who filled in for George Martin for three weeks on the White Album and played a number of instruments on the recordings as well. Just hearing his firsthand account of how that happened and what he did was, it was so awesome. And I mean, not to mention this was Chris's first time at anything like this. So he was very cool about it and um, was very gracious and, and awesome. But it's mind blowing to think that, you know, when he worked on the White Album, he was 21. Like, that's yes. crazy. Like a baby. And then we also had Ken Mansfield, who was there talking about the rooftop concert and his role with the Beatles. Obviously, he was around before that, around the time of the White Album and working with them on Apple and a bunch of other kinds of projects, uh, starting their own label. And he you know, worked with Capital and just done pretty much everything around that time. 
Yeah, so great time. They're planning on doing another one next year for Abbey Road. It's going to be at Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. So if you're around and you are available, this is a not-to-be-missed event. Seriously, we'll be there. I'm already planning it. For sure. It'll be amazing, mm-hmm. for sure. So, you know, moving on, we're just going to talk about the White Album for like ever today, which, you know, not a bad thing because we're releasing this on Monday and on Wednesday is the official anniversary of the White Album. Yeah, happy birthday, White Album. You can sing birthday to yourself. Do it. Sing birthday to yourself, White Album. Anyway, November 22nd, 1968, of course, the Beatles' self-titled album is released in the UK, and three days later, it was released in the US. It is the Beatles' ninth studio album and their first and only to span four sides on two discs, which George Martin did not want. We all know he was unhappy. He thought it should only be one disc. And apparently, Ringo backs him up on that in the anthology. He says that they should have put out the White Album and then the Whiter Album, which is problematic. Did he say this recently, or did he say this... No, it's in the anthology. I okay. mean, I, I haven't seen him, like, reinforce it, but still. Glad they didn't do that. Yeah, super glad. Super glad, especially today, they did not Jesus. release the Whiter album. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Christ. So much of this material stemmed from the Beatles' trip to Rishikesh, India, to study meditation in February of 1968. Later, when they got back, got together at George's home, Kinfons, in Esher, to demo what they created and play songs for each other. These tapes have been out as bootlegs for a long time, known as the Esher demos. But one of the high points of this re-release is that they put the Esher demos out, remix them, their incredible quality on the new White Album reissues. One of the prevailing myths around the White Album is that it was super painful to make, and Paul actually talks about it in those terms on the anthology, but I've noticed a lot of the buzz around it for its golden anniversary has been to sort of tamp that down and say, no, it wasn't such a bad experience. The Beatles were a band. They were getting back to like what they did best in the studio and playing with each other. But, you know, there's really no candy coating that it was a kind of a contentious process to make this album. Um, You know, Jeff Emmerich, who had been the Beatles engineer, walked out on the project. And George Martin, as Erica said earlier, went on vacation, sort of left Chris Thomas, who had been a producer at Air, which was George Martin's sort of producing co-op, left him like a post-it that said, hey, Chris, uh, I'm outie. So you've got the Beatles. Uh, I let Neil and Mal know. So have fun. (laughs) In those exact words. (laughs) Um, so Chris, you know, 21 year old Chris is helming this thing. Uh, he did produce birthday and happiness is a warm gun. He also played on a bunch of the tracks. Um, like he's on Mellotron on, uh, you know, Bungalow Bill. And of course, Ken Scott was brought in as engineer and mixer. Originally, the title was supposed to be A Doll's House after the Henrik Ibsen play, but the progressive rock group family beat them to it with their debut album called Music in a Doll's House. I don't know this album. I've seen the cover. It's weird. Um, I'm glad that they (laughs) didn't call it that because they already dealt with dolls and weird things in Sgt. Pepper and the butcher cover. We've had enough dolls at this point. And it makes me think of, you know, well, we'll get into this in a second, like the Manson connection, but it makes me think of Valley of the Dolls, which is really kind of a messed up thing looking back. The Paula's Dead rumors would have been crazy if there were more like weird dolls things around. But instead, you know, we have this stark white cover designed by Richard Hamilton. um, And he also takes credit for calling it the Beatles, the self-titled album. Um, According to Paul, Paul actually gives him that credit in many years from now. And it's funny because Paul tells a story where Hamilton comes to him and says, 
has there been a an album called just the Beatles? And Paul's like, I don't know. Let me check. And it's like, Paul, you don't know your <laughs> you don't know your own album. Well, that makes company. kind of sense. They don't listen to their own albums, and they're so different in the UK and and the US. And That's true. Probably I guess probably international releases with different names, also in English too. So they they just probably had no idea. True, true. I mean, at least he did his due diligence and did some fact checking. So. I spent seven weeks at the top of the UK charts during the very lucrative Christmas period. And uh, The Seekers, Georgie Girl, what a great song, what a great group, displaced them from the top on the 25th of January, 1969. But the following week, it returned to number one for one more week. It also boosted uh, the Beatles' Yellow Submarine soundtrack into the number three position. And the soundtrack debuted and peaked on the charts on February 8th in the US. The White Album debuted at number 11. Reached number two, and then it finally, finally topped the charts on its third week of release. Spent nine weeks there, with a total of 155 weeks in the Billboard 200. Not too shabby. So huge hit, and it was a big favorite of many, many fans, including one unfortunate super fan, a Mr. Charles Manson. Yeah, total Beatles super fan. Mm-hmm. Great. He would later co-op songs from the White Album as battle cries for a race war. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we should uh, talk about that next summer. Yeah, we'll save that. We'll save. Sadly, that. very sadly. As history repeats itself, as we move it into our new section, just more white album shit. Because yep. it never stops. Never. Uh, so this morning, an article came out in Billboard that uh, the White Album is in the top 10 once again here in the U.S. It is uh, number six at the moment. Uh, we'll see where it goes. But that is for the chart dated the 24th. We'll be out tomorrow on the 20th. And it's the first time the album's been in the top 10 since 1969. What I found was fascinating is that 63,000 units you know, boosted it to where it is. And 52,000 of those were traditional album album sales, which is almost unheard of wow. in this day and age of streaming and digital, all of that. So units, um, the definition sort of shifted over the years, but so they could be traditional units, like you go to Amoeba or whatever, you buy the CD or the box set, or it could be TEA, which is track equivalent sales, which is people you know downloading track by track. If you only want some of the tracks, or if you want whatever. Um, they sort of count those in a certain way that makes them count for an album sale. And then SEA, which you might guess, streaming equivalent sales or units, um, is sort of streams, and that's where they come into it. So, But if you think, like, you know, the majority, the vast majority of these were album sales. It's like shit, you know, physical product, not dead when it comes to this kind of thing. The accompanying materials are so rich and just cool to look at. I don't buy much of anything physical anymore but i want this one because it's so it's such an experience in and of itself but if you compare this this year's white album reissue to the sergeant pepper reissue last year there's lots of that going going on um it entered the uh billboard charts at number three so this is a little bit behind it but we could see that rise i think we might um but i mean it's been ranking high on amazon um 24 hours after the november 9th release of both the expanded editions of the white album including the seven discs super deluxe um and the three cd the super deluxe went to number one and the three cd edition went to number one in the uk number three in the us uh the four lp edition went to number 11 and as we speak i checked this morning um super deluxe is at five and three cd edition is at number eight 
in the, its original heyday when the White Album was released and the Yellow Submarine soundtrack got on the charts because of it kind of piggybacked. Um, Abbey Road sort of piggybacked onto the White Album and is now on the Amazon charts number 47. So not super shabby. Well, good. Maybe that will give Giles Martin and crew a heads up that this is a good idea to do to Abbey Road for next year. Just a subtle suggestion. And of course, Ringo gave a wonderful interview to Rolling Stone's Rob Sheffield, who we're going to talk about more in a minute because he's our new pal. Um, And uh, Ringo has said he's, quote unquote, glad to be heard better on Mm -hmm. the new remixes, which I think is funny when he cites uh, like Long, 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 which is not a typical, you know, you don't think of Long, Long, Long and think of like the drums. But okay, Ringo. Um, He also talks about Your Blues, which he said on Twitter is his favorite song. Like I think he said it's his favorite Beatles song. Really? Which is a really fucking interesting choice for Ringo. Yeah, it is. Um, he also includes uh, the 13-minute version of Helter Skelter, which I think is take 17 that everybody talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, he cites all these as prime evidence that he was the quote-unquote heartbeat of the band. Read this interview. It's hilarious if you haven't yet. He also talks about how he's a great dancer. He's, <laughs> he's very cute in this. And he's very, he's, sure. he's very sincere in it, too. One quote, he says, Your blues is my favorite only because of we were in a 10-foot room, not that huge room in EMI, and we were like a band again, you know, like a little club band. That's cute. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is cute. He's Ringo. I'm going to make you like him. I'm going to make you like him. Mm, we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Okay. Another Ringo news. Ringo's got a new book coming out. It's called mm-hmm. Another Day in the Life. Uh, it follows his other books. Postcards from the Boys and Photograph, both with Genesis Publications. Uh, just like the others, it'll be a collection of Ringo's photos and narration. Comes out this month uh, in limited edition, but the hardcover will be widely available for April. So if you're into it for a Christmas present, get it now because it will be very limited quantities right now. Yep, and he also announces uh, the latest slate of all-star band dates uh, and starting March 21st in Valley Center, California. And then he goes to Japan. Uh, for April, and then he'll be back in the States, I think, in August or so. So keep an eye out. Get some Ringo tickets. I saw him at the Greek uh, when he was here a couple months ago. It was a pretty good show. I really enjoyed watching him drum on Africa. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. <laughs> That's my official review. For any shitbags out there who are writing articles about how Ringo has died, fuck off. Because he's alive and he's well and he's touring Japan. So if anybody out there saw that article, which came out today, uh, Monday, November 19th is the day we're recording, it is false. Don't re- don't listen to it. It's wrong. Yeah, I didn't even, like, I, Eric and I were just talking about this before we started the podcast, but I didn't even see it. And I was, you know, as we do, we look at Beatles News right before we record to get the most, like, up-to-date stuff. I didn't see it, but that's crazy. And instead I just posted pictures of you know, Ringo with the safety pin in his ear, which is on all of our socials. So you all should go look at, look at it and like it. He looks good. He looks great. He's mm-hmm. off to, he was off to the gym this morning. There's no way he's dead. Yeah, he's fine. He's fine. Or maybe it wasn't he was dead, but he had heart trouble and he went to the hospital. It was something like that, but it was false. It was Whatever. False. Come so. on. Come on, people. This is how this is how Ringo is dead rumors get started. We don't oh have time god. for that. Oh my god, the R.I.D. conspiracy. The, <laughs> R.I.D. Oh god. <laughs> like we need more of that. Oh, yep. Well, I mean, it's a pretty good time to shift to Paul. Paul has shared two recordings of Dear Friend from Wildlife. And, of course, that and the Red Rose Speedway reissues are coming out December 7th. Uh, Dear Friend, the demo is pretty good. Um, it's pretty similar to the to the version we all know from Wildlife. Um, he did get pretty candid in a press release about writing the song and thinking about John. 
um, and how it still gets him really emotional. He said that like listening to that demo when he was getting ready to sort of put it in this package, he got super choked up. Aww. It breaks your heart a little bit because it's been so long, but he said, you know, he's really grateful that he and John got a chance to like get back in touch and reconnect and sort of reconcile before John's tragic murder, which is so nice to hear. It really is. It really is. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie, the biopic, The Two of Us, I really can't call it a biopic, but the movie, The Two of Us, <laughs> did make me believe that that did happen. But it's nice to hear from Paul that the headcanon that that movie created is kind of real. Yeah. I mean, side note, total side note, for those of you listening, and I know there are some of you listening that were there, but I, uh, a few days ago when I was in New York, I went to Strawberry Fields in Dakota and did an Instagram Live video. And I think a few people that were in the Instagram Live with me we were talking about two of us, like the scene where uh, they get stoned in Central Park and they dance around singing Shaboom by the chords, yes. which is like one of the all time best Beatles scenes in any biopic. Oh, my God. Yes. I love it. Anyway, <laughs> but if you want to hear Dear Friend, you can stream track everywhere. It's on YouTube as well. And there's also a demo of Indeed I Do, which is one of my favorite songs for Wildlife. Um, and the demo is pretty cool. I wonder if Wildlife will get a bit of a rebirth, sort of like Ram did. I hope it does. I hope so, too. I, yeah, I must say it was never one of my favorites. But now that I'm listening to all this kind of material leaking out, I'm like, oh, OK. Like, I remember liking that. I like that, too. Like, this album's pretty good. Yeah, it's a bit uneven. I think people unfairly look at the song Bip Up and make assumptions about the entire album from it. But I think it's worth a, another another try. I think so, too. I hope I hope people give it another shot. And in political news... It turns out that the Beatles' popularity is going down with conservatives. The Daily Mail had an article. Thank Christ. <laughs> Daily Mail had an article that the Beatles' popularity among Republicans has plunged by 10% since 2009, while Kanye is gaining popularity among that, that demographic because of his meetings with President Donald Trump. To quote Michael Scott, well, 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 how the turntables. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. And speaking of somebody else who's about as popular as Kanye right now, uh, Mark David Chapman denied Pearl for the 10th time. He says he feels more and more shame for what he did. But honestly, who gives a fuck? Not me. Not me either. That's certainly something you might say, too, if you feel like getting out of jail and you know what gets people out of jail. As predicted, he has also found Jesus, so I'm sure Jesus is real thrilled about that. Oh, shut up. Okay, no more of him. <laughs> no more of him. On a brighter and a lighter note, if you're going to Liverpool sometime soon, check out the new Beatles statue on Matthews Street. It's inside the Rubber Soul Complex. It's kind of almost right beside the Grapes Pub, and I think the entrance is right across from the Silla Black statue, uh, which was unveiled last year. This new statue has the Beatles. Three of them are standing, and John is sitting on a bench, which you can also sit on and have your picture taken. And uh, at first I thought it was maybe to replace this creepy-ass statue that's in the, I believe it's called the Cavern. I want to say it's like the Rope Walks, but I don't think it is. It's in the Cavern Center thing. It's right across the street from this thing. And it's got some creepy-ass Beatles statues. But, but no, they just added more. That's great, because we need more creepy beetle statues in the world this is super crazy take a look at the picture <laughs> yeah it's pretty crazy we'll uh we'll post something on our um on our socials you can take a look at it yikes <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, our last item of news is a reminder about our book club episode. And we're even more excited about this fucking book club right now. It's just like the highlight of our lives because shout out to Rob Sheffield. You know, he's listening. He is our friend now. (laughs) He was lovely and we had some lovely chats and he came to our live episode and was just wonderful and so nice to talk to him. And he has written the book that we're going to be doing for the book club just a reminder dreaming the beatles the love story of one band in the whole world so that's his book and very 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 exciting he is going to be a guest on the show very soon so stay tuned oh, so, so excited. excited yeah he's he's so great i mean you know he's a wonderful writer a crazy good music journalist but he's also just a massive ass beatles fan and the one thing we love is like a non-apologetic beatles fan and he's just so cool so knowledgeable obviously but just someone who is genuinely a fan and his writing and this book is a collection of essays all about that very thing um you know the subtitle is the love story of one man the whole world which really kind of shows it uh but yeah so exciting um we are very excited to have him on the podcast in fact he you know came to us and was we were chatting and he said can i talk on your podcast and it's like uh yeah you could own our podcast if you want like (laughs) whatever you want dude but he's uh yeah he's amazing so we're super excited yes um so as you're reading rob's book um and if you have any thoughts or comments questions especially since you know rob is gonna join us uh feel free to tweet at us you know dm us message us can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com or yeah, anywhere on social media. We are BC the Beatles everywhere. Please let us know. And he, I'm sure, will be happy to answer your questions. He is one of the most enthusiastic and genuine people. So refreshing for this industry and for writers in gen- general. Uh, he's just the best. Uh, so one more announcement really quick. Um, and it's still preliminary, but we want to give you guys the heads up that we're super excited. We're going to be hosting a holiday giveaway featuring some of this past year's guests and their books and some other fun stuff. And you guys will have a chance to win like signed books and fun little goodies. And then, you know, all you have to do to win is simply enter, which is going to be very easy. Um, so stay tuned. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll be announcing it and with the details on how to win pretty soon. So make sure you keep an eye out. So we're back and today's feature comes directly from the International White Album Symposium where we presented our live episode of BC the Beatles. Our topic was the women of BC the Beatles on the women of the White Album and we focused mostly on those women who impacted John's work. So his mother Julia, Cynthia Lennon, Yoko Ono and Prudence Sparrow. We chose a topic, obviously, because we're women, um, and we feel like it's important as female historians and fans to highlight the women who influenced this landmark album around this anniversary. And we had, like, like we said, an amazing, engaged, wonderful audience, super intelligent people. One guy was a high school English teacher, um, you know, just a real cool crew of people. They asked a lot of great questions. Some of the questions on the audio might be a little hard to hear from the audience, but we've included them in full since the discussion was so engaging. It was one of the best parts of the session. So stick around through the end of it for that. One other question we got that we didn't know the answer to was from an attendee there. And she asked, did what's the new Mary Jane refer it all to Jane Asher? So before we start this, I'm just going to go through that here. 
So What's the New Mary Jane was written by John in Rishikesh or shortly afterwards. It was based on the phrase which you hear throughout, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. It was pretty avant-garde. I mean, along with Revolution Number no. 9, it was probably the most avant-garde piece. What John said about it was, uh, this was a thing I wrote half with our electronic genius Alex, Magic Alex. It was called What a Shame Mary Jane Had a Pain at the Party, which was meant for the Beatles album. So it was meant for the, the White Album. It was recorded in the Easter demos, uh, released on the new remix, you can hear it, and was also on the um, Anthology Volume 3. So the question was, did the Mary Jane in the song refer to Paul's then fiance Jane Asher, who was also in Rishikesh? Probably not. We couldn't find any direct evidence that Jane Asher was the Mary Jane. Lennon wrote it, so she wasn't directly part of his experience in the same way that, you know, Yoko or Cynthia was or Jane was for Paul. Of course, Mary Jane, you know, means weed. So we think it's probably more just wordplay and drug references and things like that. However, there's always a chance that it was at the very least an unconscious dig at Jane Asher, who was there in Rishikesh with them, and who was, of course, going through a tumultuous time with Paul after their return, and they broke up shortly after. And also, you know, John and Jane never had a really loving relationship, I would say. You know, he would say very lewd things to her. I think one of the first things he said to her was, something I'm not going to repeat because it was super sexist and terrible. But yeah, it was yeah. gross. Suffice it to say, yeah. Suffice it to say, you know, I mean, if, if there is a connection, I think definitely agree. It, it's probably more um, subconscious, but, but it could be. Who knows? Thank you for that question. And thank you for everybody who submitted questions on our social media the week before this. We answered those as well. And thank you again to everyone who helped us create this live show. Yeah. And uh, here we go. Let's go live to the uh, White Album Symposium. our first live podcast so thank you thank you pretty exciting yeah i'm so excited to be here obviously our topic today and we're here to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the white album at the international white album symposium uh here in london and uh we're going to talk about the women of the white album both in influence and context we're going to focus primarily on john today because not only was the white album output some of his most authentic and heartfelt work but because if you're looking at the influence of women on the beatles in this time period women had a profound impact on John that can be seen in more than half of his contribution songs to the White Album. He's really in this confessional mode and talking about things in his life that maybe he shied away from a bit. If we're talking about John and Paul, of course, John has always been the more confessional Beatle, while Paul tells his story more through allegory and through stories of others and more abstract concepts. And John was really coming into his prime in this era. And I think a lot of it was because of Rishikesh, of course, because they were on their own, they were meditating, they were not doing drugs, they were not drinking, and they had a lot of time to be with themselves and with their own thoughts. And they were also kind of away from the studio artifice. So they couldn't work with George Martin on some crazy backwards taping effect. All they had was their acoustic guitars and their minds. And they were also kind of separating from each other. They weren't working as a duo as much at this time. You know, they had started separating already, but in Rishikesh, they really seemed to go their separate ways with their songwriting. So if you look at what makes John John and what makes Paul Paul, 
and you look at the White Album output, you really see a huge range of what they bring to the White Album. You know, if you look at Paul, you look at everything from Honey Pie up to Helter Skelter and everything in between. If you look at John, you're looking at Julia and you're looking at your blues and Cry Baby Cry. And you just see the individualness in these songs because they weren't working with each other as much to smooth it out. Paul wasn't adding a middle eight in the John song and like giving it that more unified Beatles sound. So we're really left with what they each brought. And in John's case, he's really turning away from any kind of artifice. You know, there's no let's write a swimming pool kind of songs from the Hard Day's Night period where, you know, they're just writing because they need to fulfill a need from their A&R people. So he's very turned inwards. When he's writing these songs, he really seems to be focusing on the women that have made him who he is and who are making him who he is in the moment. So mostly in our discussion today, we're going to be focusing on Yoko and Julia and Cynthia, but of course there were a few others. So let's talk about women for a second in this period. So for all the Beatles, obviously we've got a Rishikesh in February 1968. We have, let's do a roll call. So we've got John with Cynthia. He actually did think about bringing Yoko, but ultimately decided against it. We have George, of course, with Daddy. We have Ringo with Maureen. And then, you know, we have Paul with Jane. Um, and also, in, along the journey, is Jenny Boyd, Patty's sister. And we'll talk, of course, in a minute about Prudence Barrow. So let's start with Cynthia, because she and John, their marriage was on the rocks. At that point, um, they came to the most tumultuous moment of their marriage on the way home from Rishikesh. Um, when John gets super drunk and is on the plane and says, you know, Sin, I've had 300 affairs with different women all over the world. Cynthia has a breakdown. And when they get off the plane, Cynthia has this great line in her book, John, about how she sort of was walking through the airport clinging to John because she just felt so vulnerable. He broke her down that much that all she could do is just like cling to him. It's even more tragic because Cynthia, when she went to Rishikesh, she was not interested in the meditation or, or the, uh, the Manarishi very much, but she was interested in rekindling her relationship with John. She thought that this would be the place that she could, especially because she felt that drugs were a main reason why their marriage was disintegrating, and because they'd sworn off drugs to go to India, she felt that that would be a way that they could reconnect, and as she said, rediscover our lost closeness. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Um, she goes on to say that John became increasingly cold and aloof, and a week or two after they came to Rishikesh, he actually moved out of their shared room, telling her that he couldn't meditate with somebody else in his space. Unfortunately, though, while he said that, he was also getting these telegrams from Yoko every day. His relationship with Yoko was being more intense, and every day he would get these messages from her. For example, one read, look up at the sky, and when you see a cloud, think of me. So she was really opening his, his mind to different kinds of thoughts, and he was getting to the point where he was really connecting with her ideas and with who she was and really getting into that kind of infatuation point in a relationship and Cynthia really got closed out because if you look at the women in John's closest world, meaning Julia and, and Yoko and Cynthia, Cynthia was the one who was actually there in Rishikesh. But if you look on the White Album, she's nowhere. She's not you at all. You really can't find evidence of Cynthia on his mind even though she was the physical person in his life at the time of the songwriting. Exactly. And so Yoko, obviously, in the picture when they're in Rishikesh, but let's back up a little bit and talk about Yoko. So Yoko, as we all know, meets John in September 66 at the Indica Gallery in London, 
And depending on which telling you believe, either he climbs a ladder and sees yes on the ceiling with a magnifying glass, or she walks up to him and hands him on a card that says breathe, or you know, he's very interested in her artwork. From that point on, he sort of is familiar with her, but they're not really, you know, they're gradually building a friendship. John seems a little annoyed with her. Um, at some point, he makes some racist comments to Cynthia, to sort of being like, I don't know who this lady is. She's crazy. She wants money for her art, whatever. Shoko kept, like, coming by the house, calling the house. Um, eventually, he kicks her some money for an exhibition in September 67 called Half a Wind. And so that begins their sort of closeness, and they get closer then. So it's about six months-ish from then to Rishikesh when, and they're still not romantically involved. They don't reach that point until May of 68, uh, when Cynthia goes to Greece, and then Yoko comes to the house. They stay at home night recording the Two Virgins album, and then they, you know, get their romance on. And then Cynthia comes back in the morning, finds Yoko there in her bathrobe, sitting at the table, drinking a cup of tea, Cynthia comes in, Yoko looks up and says, oh, hi. And that's sort of how that happened. Um, By the time the White Album is underway, John really is in that Yoko mode, both lyrically and also in just sort of the sentiment and also the influences of the sound. Thinking about things a different way, we hear a lot of Yoko on the White Album, obviously. Yeah, we do. And that's not just Revolution 9. And it's not just Bungalow Bill, where we actually hear her voice. The mother references on the album, ironically, aren't to Julia, they're to Yoko. He called her mother. He called her mother. Um, Throughout the relationship. Yeah, and so you have in Having a Storm God, Mother Superior. Um, She sings the mother part in Bungalow Bill. Um, this sort of repetition. There's a lot of mother imagery on the album as a whole, you know, with Paul's Mother Nature's Son over there. But John, it's it's interesting that he conjures up that, that word of mother and more interesting that he applies it to Yoko. It's not just the mother terminology. Also, there are a couple of other songs that reflect Yoko. Your Blues is specifically about Yoko and So Lonely I Want to Die. That was him in Rishikesh, just missing her and wanting that, that connection. And Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey was also John feeling like everybody's insane except Yoko and me. And of course, Happiness is a Warm Gun is, it's a sex song. Is it? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, right? I had no idea. So that's all about Yoko. (laughs) (laughs) And she is Mother Superior and she jumped the gun, so. There you go. Tells you everything, folks. Mm -hmm. That's it. I think the most poignant song of all of these, though, of course, is, is Julia. And while on its face it's a song about his mother, it has so many intertwined dimensions to it. Donovan actually was speaking about Julia in an article, and he said this. John told me he wanted to write a song about his mother, and he said, Donovan, you're the king of children's songs. Can you help me? What a title. (laughs) Poor Donovan. I want to write a song about the childhood that I never really had with my mother. He asked me to help him with the images that he could use in lyrics about a song on the subject. So I said, well, when you think of the song, where do you imagine yourself? And John said, I'm at a beach, and I'm holding hands with my mother, and we're walking together. And I helped him with a couple of lines, seashell eyes, windy smile, for the Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland feel that John loves so much. So that part is a direct imagination of what an idyllic day with his mother could have been. And of course, John, at one point, talking about Julia, he said, I lost her twice, once as a five-year-old when I was moved in with my auntie, and once again, when she actually physically died. So he had a lot of pent-up feelings, I think, about Julia that he kind of brought out here. And of course, later in his career, he got even more explicit with that with songs like Mother and My Mummy's Dead. Yeah. Um, And if you think about the imagery, the one scenario he chooses to present to Donovan as they're creating the song is that beach imagery 
Um, of course, I think of like all the bad biopics where, you know, John's in Blackpool, you know, with his mummy and his daddy, and, you know, they make this grand decision. Of course, we know that's not true. If you, you know, Mark Lewison and his amazing book, tune in. Hashtag Lewison Hashtag Lewison is God. <laughs> We're going to make that a thing. Um, <laughs> he tells that it's, you know, it really takes place at one of Alfred London's friends' houses. They sort of have this adult discussion, and John goes away with his mother back to Liverpool. But, you know, I mean, Blackpool was obviously known as an entertainment destination. It was a beach, it was a museum park, it was somewhere that the Northerners would go on vacation. So it's not out of the range of possibility that John sort of had this memory. You know, it's poignant that it's a beach imagery, because yeah. Liverpool doesn't have a beach, you know? Right. Where's this beach? Mm-hmm. And the other part of this intertwining of people is that, of course, at one point he says, Ocean Child calls me Ocean Child. is a reference to Yoko's, the meaning of Yoko's name. It's very sweet in a way. He's having this imaginary conversation with his mother, confessing his new love and intertwining these strong feelings about these two women in this one song about his mother. We could do a whole panel exploring John's really complex relationship with Julia. It's pretty strange where you have a love song to your mother that also mentions your lover. And there's that gray area a little bit because Julia was very young when she had John. For a lot of her life, her relationships with men just revolved around sex, around romance, around dating, around sort of, around, yeah, around like sort of having a partner that would take care of her, like that kind of thing. So it's very possible that she saw John sort of as her peer and not particularly her son, especially since they didn't live together, you know. He was off of Mamie, and Mamie was the, the parental figure. She was the authoritarian. Julia was the one he snuck off to, and, you know, she taught him how to play guitar, ukulele, you know, and taught about music, and sort of was like, skip school, come over, don't tell Mimi. Um, and they had the secretive relationship. Yeah, she was more like the older sister in a way, or the babysitter. Or the babysitter, even. yeah. And, and there was one incident that John referred to where there was almost a sexual tinge to their relationship. I think they were just hanging out in bed, whatever, and he accidentally touched her breasts, and he was like, I should have, I could have gone further, I think she would have let me, was his quote. And so you'll see that reflected in the film Nowhere Boy, just a reference to the biopic, because yeah. why not? There is this complexity, and so you see Julia as this beautiful love ballad, but also it's got a lot of depth to it. It does. Yeah. And side note on the, the Yoko relationship, one thing we were thinking about was that it really intensified in September of 1967 going forward when he sponsored the art show for her. But also what happened at that time was that was just after Brian Epstein died. And if you think about the people in John's life, this was another parental figure who had very similar characteristics in the relationship to Julia. He was a little bit older than him, and he he was both a parental figure and a friend figure, and there was also this underlying hint of sexual tension. It was almost the same relationship. When Brian passed away, it seemed like Yoko almost immediately came into the picture. Yeah, we see John transferring the same relationship a few different times in his life. After the death of his mother, you sort of see him get very busy with the Beatles, meet Cynthia, he goes to school, like, you know, he does all this stuff in succession. Then he becomes super famous, so it takes him until he's like 28 to sort of deal with the Julia feelings, because he's transferred them, you know, from Julia to Cynthia to, you know, to Brian in a lot of ways, like you said, and then finally to Yoko. So throughout his life, he's sort of just repeating the same pattern. Yeah, so it's a very interesting song, and... The relationship with Yoko, I feel, is very interesting, especially at this period. I'm not sure if this is more of a first-slash-second-generation type of experience, but 
we found, you know, in our experience and talking to other people who weren't alive for the Beatles, you know, in real time, that Yoko doesn't feel quite as uh, incendiary to us. And we look at her less as the woman who broke up the Beatles. You know, I don't see it like that. And more as just somebody who kind of opened John's mind to different things and led him on a path that led him away from the Beatles. I personally like exploring the relationship with John and Yoko. I feel like her art really opened him up to some things that he, that was always inside of him, that he was able to understand more about himself and he put that in his art. Yeah, I mean, she gave him that outlet. She sort of introduced him to other ways to sort of express his inner turmoil and he sure had a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And that's significant because that comes from a woman, a very powerful woman, a very, you could say, a very masculine woman. Uh, Yoko, in a lot of ways, was, if you want to do typical gender stereotypes, she was kind of like the man of the relationship. Later, she would be the breadwinner. And, you know, John would stay home with Sean and be a house husband. Uh, Yoko was already a very established feminist. He would also look to her for A&R purposes. One of the reasons why we don't see Child of Nature on the White Album is because Yoko is like, the melody's good, John, but the lyrics are terrible. Uh, she's not wrong, I don't think. No, ish. We can talk about that later. And later on, you'll hear on the one anthology box set, and I was trying to remember what track it was. We were talking about this last night, but um, I think it's maybe on Grow Old With Me, one of the demos. You hear John in the beginning. Yoko comes in the room, and she's sort of like, what do you need? And he's like, oh, I just wanted you to come A&R it. He's really looking to her for that like approval. What do you think of the song? What do you think of this material? So... She assumes that role as well. Yeah, he respected her. He respected her art. I, I think one area where she really gets either the credit or the blame is Revolution 9. Of course, that was that was motivated by Yoko. I think he was more inclined to experiment with avant-garde music. But it does seem to be a partnership. John had once said the following. He said, I did a few mixes until I got one I liked. Yoko was there for the whole thing, and she made decisions about which loops to use. It was somewhat under her influence, I suppose. Once I heard her stuff, not just the screeching and the howling, but her sort of weird pieces and talking and breathing and all this strange stuff, I thought, my God, I got intrigued, so I wanted to do one. I spent more time on Revolution 9 than I did in half the songs I ever wrote. It was a montage. He was inspired by it, but it wasn't controlled by her vision. You know, one thing that was discussed last night at the presentation with Mark Lewison and Bruce Weiser, uh, it was that they made decisions as a unit. And you're talking about whether Revolution 9 would have gotten on the, the album if it hadn't had the agreement of all of them. It really, it did. It wasn't an outlier for them. I think it is the same way for some of us when we listen to the, the album. And in fact, Paul McCartney, though uh, his, his biggest complaint, it seemed, he talked about in the anthology, was that John got it on the album first, that he was working on avant-garde stuff and he sound out and tape loops. Which, he out-avant-garded yeah. like, so, Paul. Paul was just very upset about that. And we could do a whole sidebar about how Paul is unfairly sort of like just simplified. You know, Paul was very avant-garde at the was. time. And John sort of way, went way above that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul actually had a quote. Uh, Revolution 9 was quite similar to some of the stuff I've been doing myself for fun. He didn't think it was suitable for release, but John always encouraged me. He said that in the anthology. Paul loves to take credit for whatever he can get his mitts on, so I'm sure, uh, <laughs> as we all know. So I'm sure he uh, found a way to do that as well. I mean, John also did. They were a bunch of narcissists. What can we say? We love them. Um, say what you want. I am a Paul apologist. Eric is a Paul apologist. <laughs> Apologist. Oh, anyway. oh God. <laughs> okay. This is our podcast, guys. <laughs> Listen to us. Check us out. Um, 
We talked about a little bit about Cynthia, a lot about Yoko. We can't get away from this without discussing Prudence Farrow, of course, who is in Rishikesh with them. As the legend goes, she was so deep into her meditation, she locks herself in a room, won't come out. Um, it's like really reaching a higher plane, eight, nine hours meditating. And so the Beatles penned this song. What what is not true about that whole legend is I sort of like picture when they're writing the song, they're sitting like with their backs to her door, sort of serenading her, like, do you prove me what you're about to play? Uh, not, not so much. They <laughs> wrote it not sitting at her door, begging her to come out, but it was more like, wow, Prudence has been in her bungalow for a while. She's uh, eight, nine hours in the meditation. Like, come out of it. Come out of that meditation. Um, it's not so much, you know, physically come out to hang out with us. Yeah, and the other interesting thing was that she didn't, Prudence herself didn't know that it was written until the very, very end of the India trip when George told her about it. Did you hear about the song John wrote? So it was never actually used directly. So that, that image that I've always had of them singing it to her, you know, she was the inspiration for the song, but she it wasn't actually directed toward her in real time while they were in Rishikesh. Right. And there's also, of course, one more woman on the White Album, a fictional woman who does not exist. I mean, you could count, you know, Molly and and uh, the, the women in the songs, but there's Sexy Sadie, who we all know, not really a woman. Um, it came out in 1971, finally, when John said, oh yeah, by the way, that's Fatima Maharishi. But we were really struck by the imagery in that song as it pertains to women. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that John chooses to direct this anger at this manipulative woman who fooled everyone, who was this evil, vindictive person, instead of creating, like, you know, directing that towards a male figure or anything else or, like, a, an object or, or whatever. a feeling, even. It a was feeling. about a woman, and when, you know, when a woman in, in these songs has power, she has very negative, strong power. You know, she's, like, Voldemort level. She's awful. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, she who shall yeah. not be named. Exactly. Exactly. Well, he was not named the Maharishi. Very uh, true. You know, we talk about the White Album as having more objects than any other Beatles album. Um, we saw a great presentation about that yesterday. But, you know, this is something that it's got a lot more, I think, depth to character as well. And mm-hmm. this is a prime example of that with Sexy Sadie. I think this was the only song in John's catalog on this album where he used a fictional persona to write the song. You know, that's that's very much of a Paul Thing, you know, think about Eleanor Rigby or Lady Madonna. That's very much a Paul tool, but John John used it in, to me, a very different way. He really just used it as, as a mask so he was able to tell the story about the Maharishi rather than making up a fictional story. I mean, this was all very real to him. And while we thought of it as a devilish woman, the feelings underlying that were probably the same. I mean, he was so hurt, he was so angry by the Maharishi's behavior, which was in- interesting and ironic in a way that part of the reason he was so angry was that the Maharishi was having sex with women in Rishikesh. Very ironic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he uses a, a woman as, as the uh, stand-in for the Maharishi. So when we were preparing for this panel, we put a call out on our social media for questions if anybody had any things they wanted to explore further with this topic. So we did get a few. We wanted to address these for our listeners. We had an Instagram question from at hottinroof88 who asks, uh, how conflicted was John about Cynthia? Which is a great question. Because a very conflicted time mm-hmm. going into Rishikesh. Like we said, like you don't see her on the White Album. I think, in my perspective, John has sort of checked out already by that time. I think he was checking out more and more as he went along. And maybe he brought her for proprietary reasons. You know, it looks right. And Jane was there, and Hattie was there, and Maureen was there. Of course, Cynthia would have to be there. Even though he did consider bringing Yoko along at one point. What do you think would have happened if he would have brought Yoko? 
Well, I probably would have gotten that second room faster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's a curious thing, you know, wondering what kind of content would have been produced had Yoko been there and Rishikesh with them. You know, I don't I don't know. Yoko is obviously a spiritual person. She has a musical background herself. Mm-hmm. You know, she was obviously a very talented visual artist. But uh, you know, it's it's interesting to think, you know, what kind of content would be produced had she just been there. And in fact, I think that the content that would have been produced would have been, in a way, less heartfelt because the whole ethos of longing was in many of his songs. So Julia was longing for this past, and your blues was was, was longing for less loneliness. And, right. You know, that was just there. That sense of anticipation, I think, that came from I miss her and I want her with me right now really brought out some of his better work where, you know, maybe when he was with Yoko, it would have been more concrete experimental stuff like two months later when they were in John's house and they created Divergence. Right. And I mean, we could speculate all day long. Speculation is one of the better parts of being a Beatles fan, I think, um, about this kind of stuff, especially this period. Yes. So was he conflicted about Cynthia? I don't know. I don't think yes, I, I feel yes to no. Yes, yes if to we're, no. If yes to no, if we're going from beginning of Rishikesh to end of Rishikesh. He did have enough conflict that he didn't take Yoko. I mean, he was not adverse to having her in his life. And, mm-hmm. you know, Cynthia found her in his house two, three months afterwards. Right. So it's, it wasn't definitely for only proprietary or, you know, reasons of appearances. But I think he realized as he was there that the further he was away from Yoko, and this is reflected in the songs that he's writing, he was only thinking about Yoko. Cynthia appears in no places in the White Album. And Yoko was everywhere. So I think by the end, and he really put that final nail in the coffin on the plane ride home from Rishikesh, where he said, by the way, I've slept with over 300 people. You know, a fact that he could have said at any time during their marriage, because clearly that didn't happen in the past six months. No. And he chose to do that then. He chose, you know, when you say that in a relationship, you're done. You're done. Yeah, yeah. So he may have started out conflicted, but uh, we assume. I mean, come on. Um, what is what is your view? Yes no, I think no? the same thing. I think you know he if he if he had any conflict going into it, it was you know he didn't at the end. Let's just say it that way. I yeah, think he had made his call. Made a call at the end. Yeah, he did have some conflict about it later. I mean, it wasn't cut and dry. You know. Yeah. He, he did say later on in some interviews that perhaps it could have lasted. Yeah. Maybe, you know, they could have done something about it. He says and, that you know when they were they got together too young, they got together and they were physical too fast. He said that they had sort of gotten to know each other and prolonged it a bit. Um, he said the the quote is, you know, I think it would have lasted. I know it would have lasted. Whether it would have, you know, we could debate. But John had that view later, which is... Right, I think he softened a little bit. A little bit. You know, which you do as you have hindsight and you're out of a situation case, obviously. As you do. Yeah. Um, Our second question came from Dr. Linda M. Nadian. She asked, do the influence of Yoko and Linda influence the creativity and conceptual development of the album, either consciously or unconsciously? We've already discussed a lot about Yoko. I, I think that both consciously and unconsciously, he did both in how he was writing his songs, the experimental music that he felt more open to expressing, and the concrete presence of Yoko in the recording studio, which there was, of course, some animosity among the Beatles for her being there. But I think mostly it just guided his, his direction on how he wanted to be a songwriter. 
And as Allison said before, she did kind of serve as an A&R man for him with Child of Nature, where she said, you know, lyrics are bad. She, again, was a conduit to sort of like give him the green light to sing something like Your Blues, which is such a radical Beatles song, if you think about it. I think it's probably, for me, the most radical in the canon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I don't know if that would have happened without Yoko there. Um, and it's interesting because in the past he had always relied on Paul for that, and Paul had relied on him. But since they didn't write songs together at this time, he had Yoko as his partner for that. You know, eventually Paul started relying on Linda, and they, you know, they had their separate ways. Yeah. So let's talk about Linda because this is an interesting question because Linda's not really concretely in the picture quite yet. They don't get married till the next year, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about if we have an Abbey Road symposium. Um, yes. Knock on wood. But Linda sort of, so they meet, you know, at Sergeant Pepper release party in 1967 at Brian Epstein's house. They had sort of met before that in clubs around London, that kind of thing, but they got to know each other starting then. And, you know, the famous story of the bag and nails and all this beautiful, you know, lovey-dovey imagery that Paul likes to create and spin and narratives. Hey. Um, I'm sorry. It's true, though. You know it. Um, so Linda is in the picture. She's, of course, in New York. Paul's still in London with Jane. And then they and break up. And he got up. engaged to Jane and he got in the summer of 67. So he was moving forward with that, but also not. Yeah, exactly. So we'll talk in another minute. We got a very interesting question about another woman in Paul's life, which doesn't really get that much recognition. So as far as Linda, Paul is in this sort of uh, transitional period. Even though he and Jane get engaged, they're not they're not doing very well. Um, eventually, they do break up. Paul goes to L.A. for one of my favorite Beatle periods, the Dirty Weekend, um, where legend has it. I mean, legend, a.k.a. Peter Brown's salacious book, so All You Make. Uh, but, you know, read it with a grain of salt. It's not Lewison, but... So, Paul goes to the Beverly Hills Hotel. He has a bungalow in the back. It's a two-bedroom bungalow. According to Peter Brown, he has a young blonde starlet in one room and a quote-unquote black hooker in the other room. Um, he's going from room to room, being a bad boy, doing his thing. He had invited Linda. Linda was like, no, I've got the kid. I'm in New York. I can't really get away from work, whatever. So, Paul's like, all right, great. I'm going to go crazy. He does. And then the entourage there gets a call that Linda's on her way so Paul quickly like shoos everybody out and Linda comes at the same time we had the actress Peggy Lipton there who Peggy had a, an affair with Paul starting in 1965 and sort of here and there throughout the years Peggy was way more invested than Paul was um, and if you want to read more about that she wrote a great autobiography a few years ago so she had found out Paul was at the hotel she shows up at the bungalow and is trying to get in she can't get in she can't get to Paul all she sees is when Linda arrives, the two of them walk into a car, and she breaks down in tears and, you know, has a big a big breakdown over that. But So starting when, you know, when they arrived at the bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, that was sort of like when they became super intense. You know, so that was until May of 68. I Will was actually kind of a long, it had a longer period. It was first started in Rishikesh, but it wasn't recorded until the 16th or 17th of September, 1968. This was one song where he evolved some lyrics multiple times, and a lot of it was because of Linda. As he started getting closer with Linda, he started making the song more about Linda. And just like some of John's songs were, this also has this sense of anticipation, this sense of first but sure love, this forever and ever I will. And it took a lot of takes. I think it was 67 takes mm-hmm. for I Will. It was one of the, the longer processes in the White Album recording for one of the shortest songs, for sure. And also, if you compare that, just interestingly, to some of Paul's like early love songs, where they were done in like an hour with uh, George Martin Studio, it's like 67 takes for a lovely little song. I think it's worth it. I think it's, yeah. it's one of my favorite songs of Paul's love song. 
The last question we got, Ian Ling asked on Twitter, has Francie Schwartz been sidelined for her contribution over time? And of course, Francie is is here in the White Album period. Mm-hmm. Um, she was with Paul. Um, so a little background on Francie. She, at the time, she was 23 years old. She was American. She met Paul when she proposed a film script to Apple, and she met him in April of 1968 after they returned from Rishikesh. And of course, after the majority of the album was composed, a relationship between Paul and Francie developed very quickly. He invited her to move in with him very soon and gave her a job at Apple working with Derek Taylor in Apple's PR department. She was integrated very quickly, but unfortunately, things deteriorated very quickly shortly after when Jane Asher had a very similar uh, circumstance to Cynthia, where she came back early from a holiday and walked in and found them in bed together. So the relationship with both Paul and Francie and Paul and Jane went downhill at that point. Francie wasn't, she was around in the Apple world during the time of the recording. She herself claimed that she sang some of the do-up on Revolution 1 along with Maureen Starkey. And she also chose some of the photo sites for the Mad Day Outshoot. Those were the majority of her actual contributions during the time. And it was not so much as a muse, but more actually as an employee of Apple. She did these concrete tasks here. Which is super significant. I mean, you know, we have the women of Apple, which would be a great panel that maybe we'll do, you know, at a future conference. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, we have Chris O'Dell, we have Francie Schwartz, we have the various secretaries mm-hmm. that would now be called PAs that are doing, you know, the Lord's work back home in the home office. So, you know, Francie, again, she did contribute a little bit to the White Album itself, but just day-to-day was was really significant presence. We had one last question, and I'm sorry I did not write down who it was, but we got asked, was Yoko's solo on Bungalow Bill the first time a Beatle wife had been on a recording? It was for sure the first and only time that a Beatle wife had a solo. Maureen Starkey was in Revolution 1, and I think, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Linda was at the Hey Jude recording, and she was in that, that mood. But Yoko does have that one distinction of the only solo. And where again, as we mentioned earlier, she was playing the role of mother in that song. So there's another mother reference for you. Exactly. Uh, with Yoko on the White Album. I just want to make a weird note on a personal note because we've talked a lot about the mother imagery. And obviously, it's very, as you said, overarching in the White Album as a whole. And the fact that Yoko shows up in this love song for John's mother, Julia, and that kind of thing. I can't imagine a world where John would not create that parallel between. Julie and Yoko in the mother phase. I was telling Erica last night, I tragically lost my father when I was seven. And whenever I say father in any context, I sort of think, oh, my dad. You know what I mean? So when he's calling Yoko mother, mother superior, talking about Bungalow Bill's mother, whatever, it's like, and he's sort of putting Yoko in that position, but he's got to also be thinking, Julia, like my mother, I lost my mother. That's what that word means to me. But I'm going to insert Yoko into that role, which adds that weird level of complexity even more. It comes from that foundation of loss, I think, and filling that void, Mm -hmm. but in a really strange way, really complex way. So just to close out what we're talking about, women in the White Album are a significant presence, especially for John, and even though that they are not physically on most of the records, and the A&R men were not women, and many of the people who worked with them were not women, they were there, and they are here. And we hope that through this podcast, we will be able to highlight more of those people and those contributions and talk about this particular corner of Beatles history. And give more voice to marginalized members of the Beatles entourage and and subjects that maybe don't get talked about as often as they should. So we do have some time for questions and discussions. So if you guys have any 
Yeah. Just a quick question. It's, it's interesting that Lennon's lyrics on Rubber Soul, a travesty title of Carol, be of another man, so it seems to shift from uh, sort of violent misogyny in his lyrics to other in the feminine, to this exoticism in Julia. So it seems to lurch from one extreme to the other. So was he going to do think some sort of huge ideological change because of your Julia's album? I really think she opened him up to a different way of thinking about the world and about women. I mean, if you think about early John, you know, he was a teddy boy. He was a very manly scouser. He beat people up, you know, for calling him gay. You know, he really did embody that persona of the tough, tough scouse man. Yeah, he admitted publicly that he hit women and he got in fights with men because he didn't know how to channel his anger properly. And there's uh, at least one documented story that he hit Cynthia while they were dating, before they were married. She put that in her autobiography. John, yeah. Yeah. And he, um, you know, he did not... If you look at the partnership between Cynthia and the partnership between Yoko, they were very different. You know, he did not appear to look at her as an equal partner. He looked at her as me. One one thing we were talking about with Jude Sutherland Kessler last night, actually, we were talking about John. She's got a presentation next, so if you want to hear more definitely about John, definitely go. She's, she's wonderful. Yeah. Um, she was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago for John's birthday, so you know if you haven't listened to it, she's... And we actually go very deep into this sort of dichotomy between Lenin Center versus Saint, because people love to either, like they love to categorize women as Madonna or whore. It's like Lenin Center, is he St. John Lennon, or is he yes, like he's a bad speaker of peace and love, or was he a yeah. wife beater? You know, yeah. It's quite interesting that Chris Holder, the white album, he is with very self-consciously poetic, and it's such a brilliant song, Jimmy, the lyrics are amazing. But then sort of post that, children after the time, it's more... Your prime screen stripped on you in the lyricism. Maybe he's moved away from that exoticism of the other in a sense. We actually saw a panel yesterday where uh, one scholar was talking about how John even defined his own career in periods. You know, my Fat Elvis period, my Bob Dylan period, <laughs> you know. And I think during the White Album, he had his introspective period. And, you know, then he did have his primal screen period. He had his heroin period. You know, he had a lot of different periods. I think that Yoko opened him up, though, to something that he never was was aware of before because, you know, he went into his, his fighting for peace period, which I think that maybe he couldn't have done that unless he had this influence of this person who really cared about the outer world in a different way. Another song that I think fits into this small group of his women's songs is Woman is the N-Word of the World. Actually, Jude does a great presentation about this, too. While I feel like in a modern day context that comparison isn't correct, I don't I don't think that the two experiences are the same. But I do feel like that was something that Yoko actually said, and he he believed it, and he wrote this song to try and make a shocking statement about the state of women in the world, to try and and get men to open their eyes. You know, if you don't believe me, take a look at the one you're with. You know, look at this, right? So I don't feel like John of 1964 would have ever seen that. Maybe even John of 1966 wouldn't have seen that. But Yoko, that relationship made him think about new things. Yeah, and if you think about Yoko just as a, a baseline, she was a feminist, you know, and that was something that came to light in the 60s. You know, Yoko was this avant-garde artist who invited people to cut her clothes off. You know, she did all this radical stuff. And John grew up, obviously, with Mimi, who is very old school, very proper. He grew up with these this 
this ideological concepts of what women were and what their relationships to men were. And Cynthia embodied that. She was a subservient wife. She, you know, she didn't work. She took care of Julian. She, you know, did everything that a wife is supposed to do. And then along comes Yoko and just like wakes him up and says, no, I am a feminist. I do this crazy art. I do like this. It's me. And doesn't sort of kowtow to John. She is who she is. Yeah. And one thing Jude was telling us last night was that there was a big change between his life with Cynthia and his life with Yoko in that Yoko had rules, as Jude said. Yoko had dietary restrictions. You know, they ended up going macrobiotic. Yoko would not tolerate him leaving clothes or beer cans or guitars around their home. You know, she made him pick up his stuff. She made him kind of almost like in that mother role and where right. Cynthia would kind of let him do whatever he felt like doing. Yeah. And maybe partly that control, you know, I'm obviously just speculating here, but maybe that control is something that really kind of helped him get his thoughts in a different direction, too, because yeah. he was looking at women in a new way. She structured it. Yeah, I mean, because children, if you think about children, children create structure. Do your homework, do your chores, whatever. It's like Yoko was creating that for John. Like, pick up your beer cans, John. Like, clean up your shit. Like, you know, you're going to actually be a functional adult human being. I'm not going to take care of you in the same way. It definitely grew him up. It woke him up a lot, yeah. I kind of have always interpreted John's relationship with Cynthia right from their marriage as obligatory. She got pregnant, he married her, because that's what she did, and that there really wasn't ever any sort of connection of anything deeper. And I don't, you know, that's just the way I've always kind of observed it through his music and things I've read. Right, and you're not alone. A, yeah. lot of, a lot of people feel that way. I mean, John has that quote about Julian that was like he was born out of a beer bottle on a Saturday night. You know, Brian was came to John and was like, well, you, this happened, you got to marry her, and we can't tell anybody about it. It is really hard to speculate about that because John loves to paint it in different lights depending on what he's going through at the time. Like we said earlier, he really believed at one point they would have made it. Whether it was a soulmate match made in heaven, I don't, I don't think so, but I think it's young love, you know, who can say? Like, yeah, if you look at some of his earlier letters from 58, right. you've ever seen that Christmas card that he oh. drew for the first Christmas together, yeah. you know, our first Christmas together, let's hope it's never our last, yeah. and, you know, he, and he would he would write these almost like word salad letters to her, you know, sin, sin, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, and he'd send these things to her when he was in Hamburg and everything, and he did make a point of, of wanting her to visit, even though he was living a bit of a dual life, you know, with the 300 women building up that, uh, that total there, it takes a, takes a while, it got to start again. The toe board, <laughs> climbing. Yeah, but um, I, think, I think you're right, it was first love, he loved her in a way, but the pregnancy and the obligation... And also, you know, Brian's viewpoint towards it was that she had to stay hidden. You know, they didn't want to tell anybody that he was married. She wasn't allowed in the very beginning to be part of his life. If you're not allowing your wife and your son, how can you become a family? How can you get to know them? And he went in other directions. And, you know, Cynthia was did not seem to be somebody who really stood her ground about things, so she let those things happen yeah. as well. One thing that Jude talks about on our podcast I think is really interesting is, and I didn't know this, but Jude is obviously the expert, so she can school us all day long about John Lennon. <laughs> on the 64 tour, and in fact, when they go to New York to do Ed Sullivan, John is insistent that Cynthia comes. He says, Brian, she's coming. I don't care. Like, I'm bringing Cynthia, and if I can't bring Cynthia, I'm not going to do it, which shows you where John was with Cynthia at that time. And in fact, Cynthia didn't stay hidden very long. She was sort of hidden until somebody snapped a picture from the baby buggy, obviously. And right, and then- 
and then, a sorry girl she's married in the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then Cynthia becomes this adopted mother figure to these legions of teenage girls who sort of are like, okay, John's married, and Cynthia's really cool. Like, she shows up in the teen mags, and she cavorts with other, like, rock wives and that kind of thing. So John, at some point, was like, Cynthia is part of me. This is who I am. And maybe he was just trying to make a go of it, but it seemed like he was really invested. I don't know if anybody else would have made that push to be like, nope, she's come to America, Brian, and that's, that's it. She definitely meant something to him. It wasn't just sort of a shotgun wedding, I don't think. He loved her and he needed her in certain ways. Yeah. But I don't think in that deep partnership way that he craved the same way that, you know, he said mm-hmm. he had two partners in his life, Paul McCartney and Joe Pavono. So, you know, that was something that he really mm-hmm. wanted in his life. Yeah. I got to give a little context to my question. Uh, sure. I teach high school English, and so I've crafted a couple of courses looking at lyrics. One is literature music, but more recently, 1960s lyrics and literature. I want to go to your high we school. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's wonderful. We're a little old. Can we take um, your class? I'll be passing this out to my students, actually. So. <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. But uh, one of the questions I had on the final exam is looking at the, the social changes of the 60s and how the lyrics, uh, not just Beatles, but just all around, uh, obviously a lot of focus on civil rights, and also, even though not explicitly stated, uh, the LGBT matters as well in terms of just, you know, challenging, you know, men growing their hair along, challenging gender stereotypes. But, um, no matter what I write the questions, the sexism still seems to be pretty rampant, uh, even among groups who are arguing for more you know, social change. And I mentioned most specifically John Lennon as someone who did not, uh, was not here when the Beatles were here. I've always been pretty pro-Yoko, maybe naively so, but still pro-Yoko in the sense that seeing this evolution of John Lennon as somebody who's maybe the sensitive kid but then has to bury his emotions, but then opens up and then ultimately at the end with that Rolling Stone cover, uh, the Andy Leibovitz photo, mm-hmm. and taking the picture, taking the day he died, and just this incredible evolution. But I guess I'd always seen it as, well, isn't it great that this male evolved this way? But my question ultimately students is in light of the Me Too um, movement times up, how we're reevaluating all this stuff, how can we look, particularly John Lennon's uh, lyrics or the comments on his physical abuse? And I just had one last thing. It was on a cafe recently that played all of Rubber Soul, and when Run for Your Life came on, I'm like, whoa. You're like looking around like nervously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's my question to you is how do we view, is this? redemption story or do we really have to reevaluate the guy who wrote Imagine with his chance? It's an interesting question. Such a great question. And it's something we've been talking about because we've been talking yeah. about, you know, what kind of episodes should we do focusing on the Me Too movement? And it's tough because, you know, on one hand you have how do you evaluate somebody who did these things 50 years ago at a time when people were just more blasé and if you look at his, the way he uh, mocked disabled people on stage and in his joking, that's a similar thing. Do you give somebody a pass for that? Do you just strike that from the from the canon, those, those particularly offensive things? Or do you just have to take a more nuanced view of it and say, you know, he was, he was not all good, he was not all bad, and he did some things that are objectively awful? And we cannot, we, we should not sugarcoat that. Yeah. Well, I think you have to also keep in mind that, that John is an early rock and roller. So with those lyrics, especially since he is channeling Elvis's lyrics there, he is treating women the same way that in the rock and roll tradition of how women were treated in the early years. Well, that's very true. That's very true. Those were not all of his lyrics. So that is another thing to remember. Right. He's going to run for your life. It's, it's part of the rock and roll tradition. You know, women, cars, they were kind of um, in and out throwaway. I mean, Chuck Berry kind of thing, you know, 
Right, that's there wasn't a whole yeah. lot of room for introspection, you know, which is why, you know, I don't know the timeline of the song, but I just love that, you know, Leslie Gore song, Don't Tell Me What to Do and Don't yeah. Tell Me What to Say. Like, probably maybe Leslie the first time Gore I was singing that song right. of all people. You know, this is not a someone that you normally picture as a, a great feminist mm-hmm. in yeah. so many years. Um, but what a great song. And so I, I think John is a product of his upbringing. You know, maybe that's how women at that time where he was from already, but I also think he's part of that rock and roll tradition. I think one way you can interpret Run For Your Life is that, like you said, like he had a lot of, we'd be talking about, a lot of suppressed anger, a lot of issues with the women, and maybe that's how it came out. Sort of like, I'm just going to say this lyric and it's going to like, you know, sort of release a little bit of that. And like you said, you know, you said it beautifully, when he meets Yoko, he has this final release for all this pent-up tension that he's been carrying around his whole life. As far as giving a pass at dealing with the Me Too movement, and it's so funny, because we literally were talking about this like two days ago, how we're going to address that in the podcast. You know, John was a complex person. I don't think we can put a label on him as his battery's good. I think everybody, you know, there's good and bad in everyone, as, uh, you know, Paul and Stevie told us. Uh, so... I did get it. Wow, you did it. I did it. I did it. Okay. You got that. But you know, it's true. It's true. And like, you know, you, I think with something like Imagine, it's important to remember that John is not a perfect person and people deify him to death. We all know it. You know, you find people exalting him as a saint and holding him up as a beacon of peace and love, no matter what. But he did have a really troubled past. He had a really complicated past. Do I think he sort of turned it around a little bit? Yeah, I think he may have. A little bit, but is that narrative correct either? This is the, the house husband finding peace with the world at the end of his life. Is that true? Is that not? I mean, The Lost Weekend was certainly there in the 70s. That was after Imagine. You know, he, he did not have a straight trajectory towards any kind of enlightenment. I do think in our culture today, you know, just as a broader topic, you know, we're so quick. And I probably sound anti-feminist by saying this, but I'm a total feminist, so obviously. But I think we are really quick to say, like, okay, you did this one bad thing. Like, you're done. You're gone. And obviously, there's varying degrees of bad things. If you do, if you murder somebody, yeah, you're whatever. But if you, like, steal a piece of candy from the store, like, should that be equal to, like, murder? I don't know. So just taking John into consideration, we have to, like, look at the whole picture, and we have to say, okay, yeah, he, and he knew he was a bastard. He said he was a bastard all the time. He's like, I was a bastard. I was, you know, I did this, I beat women. Like, he atoned for that. And he held himself up. He was very accountable for, for what he did. And I think actions speak louder than words. And towards the end of his life, you know, he only lived, he lived such a short life. But he did seem to sort of fall into that nice role of like, okay, now I've sort of got my shit together. I've made amends with Julian a little bit. You know, Gilko and Sean and I are a family unit. Starting to make music again, easing back into this. So, I mean, you could make a lot of conjecture about John and the Me Too movement. I don't think it's fair to place him at either end of that spectrum. I like to believe had he lived, he would have been an ardent supporter, though. Yeah, I think he definitely would have, of LGBTQ rights. I saw Gilko at the Women's March. Probably would have been right there along with him. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's so amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much again for waking up early. Yes, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. And we're back. And we'd love to close out like we do every episode with our favorite Beatles-related thing of the week. And usually we do this separately, but we agreed pretty much right away after the symposium that our our favorite thing was going to be exactly the same so we're going to do it together this week yeah if there's anything that we were obsessed with about 
in this entire week of obsessing over the Beatles. It was, we got to hang out with Mark Lewison. We got to uh, hang out on. with Mark Lewison. And, and Chris Thomas. And Chris Thomas. I mean, like, come on. Together. Like, how, how much luckier can you get? I mean, these guys are, just to hear them talk. Anyway, we sat their feet really kind of symbolically um, and listened to them talk to each other about, obviously, the Beatles, the White Album, like all that kind of stuff, and just sort of like soak it in, which was amazing. We're sitting at a bar and we're listening to the foremost Beatles historian in the world talk with a producer on the White Album about their experiences. They talked shop. What? Yeah, what? Hello, this is us? Oh my God. Like, I don't know. I know that I've had some very surreal experiences, but that was definitely up there for sure. That was amazing. It was incredible to sort of just get to witness that and, uh, you know, spend some real kind of like off the clock time with these really knowledgeable men and just, just listen to them and learn a lot and just spend that time which is so invaluable we also took some fun pictures which we shared on our instagram there's a really cute one of us with mark and by the way he insisted we take these pictures it really wasn't us so it's true he uh, was like let's take pictures and we did and we kept going around the circular table that we were at like in different weird poses it was hilarious i know the next day chris thomas said to me because he um he came and sat with us for lunch um, at the symposium and he said you know I got up and took a bunch of pictures and then somebody else got up but didn't take the camera so I took a lot of pictures <laughs> I said, that's okay it's okay Chris like you know we got you in a lot of pictures so yeah we got some great pictures like pulling faces which I'm pretty sure was also Mark's idea it's possible he's a funny dude he really has one of the best sense of humor honestly like people talk at length and very rightfully so about how knowledgeable he is and how thorough he is and all that but he's just he's fucking funny like and that's i appreciate that so much that's one of the best parts about it i mean i'm actually not really into meeting like famous people or you know people that i i like to read or listen to or anything because it, it weirds me out but in this case it does it does like if it's this weird i don't know it's just weird it's but okay. It's okay. <laughs> in this case it was just getting to know somebody rather than that kind of can i have your autograph sort of thing and yeah. getting to know somebody who is that smart and that dedicated to this thing that we also do was just outstanding. And that's the same for Rob Sheffield, the same for Chris Thomas, same for so many other people that we met this weekend. Maybe that's the real highlight. Like, obviously, spending that quality time with, like, you know, Mark Lewison and Chris Thomas. But just also just being among our peers, it was so surreal to be like, okay, we're in this room you know, um, I, we've both been doing this for so long. We've been writing, we've been, you know, historians for, I mean, many, many years. And it's like, okay, well, we're here with these people. We like, we're learning with them. We're talking with them. We're, you know, networking with them. We're just, you know, getting to know them. And it was so cool to be like, okay, well, this is like the summit, you know, the Beatles summit of these minds. And we're here. Like, what the mm -hmm. hell? It's so cool. This might be our favorite Beatle related thing of the week for the next like six months. I don't know. Yeah, it might be. I mean, we're going to top this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, definitely that Red Rose Speedway reissue is not going to top this. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Just full stop. Maybe wildlife. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe wildlife. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I told Chris Thomas, I'm like, you need to write a book about Run Double Run. And I would read that. Although I'm like, you know, the patron saint for like shit albums. Although it's not a shit album. Run it's Double not, Run. It's not, not a shit not, album. Not a shit album. Not at all. So 
So uh, I think he should be uh, working on that book. Anyway. Well, maybe when he comes on the podcast, like he said he would, we can ask him again. Yes. Yeah, so excited. I know. I know. Anyway, I'm just like squeeing right now. I just, I'll squee forever over right. that hole. Yeah. That's again. Totally. Well, we're going to go squee. <sighs> and thank you we're so much for listening to BC The Beatles. As always, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. Stream us on Spotify and give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Yeah, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Also, as always, feel free to shoot us an email at bcthebeatles at gmail.com with your Beatles-related thoughts, comments, questions, uh, weird dreams you have, anything, really. Um, And we'll see you next time here on Because the Beatles. Bye. Uh, Bye-bye.